0: Well, hello, welcome to Downtown the Podcast, episode number 58. Rich Kimball, Kerry Haskell from the Zone Radio Studios in Bangor, Maine, where we host the Downtown Show every weekday afternoon, 4 to 6 Eastern Time, on WZON, 3 streaming audio, WZONAM.com, and Downtown with RichKimball.com. We're brought to you every week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. And this time around, a couple of guests who both make documentary films, and I, I've just ever since I guess I was a kid, I've always been a fan of documentaries. I think it's such a powerful way of telling a story.
1: It gets a, across so much more than just a, even a book on the same hmm. subject. The documentary allows those people to speak, gives them a voice, and it just makes it more authentic
0: absolutely we've got two of them that we'll be talking about this week both are sports related and we begin with filmmaker aviva kempner who has done acclaimed documentaries of baseball star hank greenberg early television star gertrude berg emmy award nominee star and producer of the goldbergs back in the late late 1940s different goldbergs than the one you know today Her latest film uh, trains its lens on one of the most interesting stories in all of sports history, Mo Berg, the uh, longtime major league catcher who also was deeply involved in espionage for the United States government throughout the course of World War II. The film is called The Spy Behind Home Plate, we had a chance to talk about it with filmmaker Aviva Kemner. It is such a wonderful film. Carrie and I have both had a chance to watch it. And, and we knew a little bit about the story of Moburg, but we learned so much. And, and I guess what I learned from your film is that even if he had never been a spy, his story was an incredible one. Maybe one of the smartest people ever to play professional sports.
2: Correct. They called him the brainiest man. To ever play uh, baseball, and he spoke at least ten languages, if not more. Although the joke is he couldn't get any of them, but actually that's really not fair. He was 15 years in the major league, and he did have an average of 2.43. um, And started out as shortstop, and then moved to catcher, which I think you know, in a way, helped prepare him being a spy. You know, you have to do the secret signals the pitcher, and then you have to, like, know everything that's happening on the field. So, um, he was quite uh, a personality, both playing baseball, but then when, uh, after Pearl Harbor happened, FDR started the OSS, which was our specific intelligence agency, and partly Ian Fleming of 007 Claim, who developed James Bond, came and helped. Um, set up the OSS, and Moe was one of um, the most important spies, because he was the one earmarked to do the espionage on whether or not the Germans had the nuclear bomb, and we know that that would have really changed the whole world. We probably wouldn't be talking now. They had developed that, but we didn't know that when we were you know, developing the Mo Manhattan Project, and it was really Mo's ability to speak languages and sort of be a chameleon going in and out, and his biggest mission was checking out if Heisenberg, who was giving a lecture in Zurich, was um, equipped, you know, knowledgeable enough to develop a bomb in Germany, and with a gun and a cyanide pill in his pocket, that's when he was listening to the lecture. But you have to see the movie to see what he finally did, and it's called The Spy Behind Home Plate, and I think, you know, we talk about Many baseball players, I assume you have a lot of Red Sox fans coming out of Maine. Um, Ted Williams went off to war, Hank Hank Greenberg, who I made a film before, Joe DiMaggio, Bob Feller. Mo left coaching career to go risk his life every day and sometimes we forget what these athletes, you know, did for our country. And also I think there should be asterisks in the stat boxes because they never had you know, full careers. I mean, I know Hank lost four and a half, probably. Mo would have gone out to be a coach or a manager. So um, it's pretty incredible. And, you know, we opened it specifically on Memorial Day. So we remember in the past uh, how much how much contribution someone like Mo made to our, for our
0: country. Well, and his family story is fascinating as well. His father didn't think much of his baseball career, wanted to become a lawyer, which, which he did. But... but... As you point out in the film, his father never watched him play professional baseball.
2: Can you imagine all the years Mo played as a youngster, and he was a star at Princeton, 15 years in the major leagues, and not once did Bernard Berg go see him play. You know, I guess he just thought it was frivolous and it wasn't something he wanted, you know, as an immigrant, his son to be doing, which is, you know, a very sad story. And actually, he just died before Matt Mo and his brother also joined it, you know, fought the war effort. So, unfortunately, he never really got to see how brave both his sons were.
1: And maybe what was a little bit of a foreshadowing of what was to come, I found it really interesting that his first sort of organized team of baseball, he had to adopt an identity because it was for a church league that (laughs) he shouldn't have been playing on.
2: Well, you know, gentlemen, it's really interesting that you talk to me today, because he died this day in 1972, and we don't know where his ashes were. Supposedly, his sister sent them to Israel, but that was never confirmed. When he was a young boy, like you say, he played on a Christian team, so he changed his name to Rod Wolf. All the books say he was born in early March. When we found his birth certificate, he's really born on May 3rd, and it was recorded on May 8th. So, my line is, Moberg is a mystery from birth until death. <laughs> but, you know, I'm really, I've been thinking all day that I'm so happy that I did this film so if he doesn't go into obscurity. And that, you know, my MO is to make films about unknown Jewish heroes. And, you know, we worry about the capability of North Korea and the Middle East and Russia in, in unleashing a nuclear power. And I can think of it as all the spies that are operating right now and how difficult it is and how dangerous it is. So I'm glad to be able to tell one man's story.
0: We're talking with filmmaker Aviva Kempner. The new documentary is The Spy Behind Home Plate. I thought it was very interesting uh, to hear in the film about his work with John Kieran, the sports writer who uh, really took a (laughs) shine to him because he was so incredibly quotable. And then his experiences on the quiz show that was the rage of the nation at the time, Information Please. Well, it's funny
2: because, you know, there's this one gentleman, I forgot his name, who's on Jeopardy right now for weeks and weeks of weeks. Yes. And, you know, um Mo Berg in the early forties was on this information please and had the most the best answers for the most aeriotype questions except when it would be anything about the law, even though he had gone to law school, he just didn't want to be asked about that. He got so many letters that Baseball commissioner Landis said, Boy, you did more for baseball than I ever did. So it was quite, you know, back then it was only radio, there was no TV. And it's just, he got thousands of letters because people were just fascinated by the way he could answer the questions. Um, I mean, we have some smart guys in baseball now. I was able to have get Brad Osmos, Mm. who is the (laughs) manager of the Los Angeles Angels, who had previously been a catcher also Jewish, also Dartmouth had gone to an Ivy League school. But I think Moberg is in a category unique to anyone else. And, you know, I, I believe we tell a great story um, because it, it co- combines the golden age of baseball, which is my favorite time. You know, um, just the American League and um, the National League, you know, you either win or not and you go to the World Series, not in all these playoffs, daytime games, you know, the players weren't in it so much for the money. Not that that's all what it is today, but really some some incredible baseball back then. Mung-Dub was a man who um, would sit there in the dugout and, you know, tell the fellow pitchers, you know, what was happening in Europe. I mean, he, had, he, he could spin quite a tale about what the current events were and then dress up at night and go off to embassy parties because he played for the Senators some
0: years. And he made two trips to Japan, one to teach the game, and then one uh, as, with an all-star group. And while he was there, took a movie camera with him. And that film was later used, as you point out, by a Jimmy Doolittle in the, in the raids on Tokyo. Do you think that the film he took, did he intend for that to be a part of an early espionage effort?
2: I think he definitely took it as an intelligence matter. My belief, he did it more in his own volition. But either way, you know, and later on, the government actually asked Lefty Gomez, who was also on the trip, taking footage, and Jimmy Fox for their footage. And by the way, we had these great home movies of the ship going over with a lot of fun with Babe Ruth and the others. You know, this was, and Luke Gehrig, this was quite uh, a trip, you know. Uh, and it was also to Japan, which was sort of the last dish effort before Japan became so narrow mir- mm-hmm. You know, bent on military rule, so it wasn't it wasn't so much dangerous because it was you know a goodwill trip. But the kind of things that Mo was trying to do,
0: and a great yeah. anecdote that you tell in the film as well about Babe Ruth's reaction to the attack on Pearl Harbor.
2: Right, um, I'm staying right now in New York, um, New York, by Riverside Avenue, and up the street is where Babe left lived. And when he heard about Pearl Harbor, he had Received all these, uh, you know, delicate um, porcelain pottery from the Japanese on this goodwill trip. He was so furious he started throwing it out the window. And I have Babe's daughter uh, before she passed, passed away um, talking about how her mother had to prevent Babe from throwing the, <laughs> you know, more pottery out the window because he was so furious. Yeah, and... and it was out of that that. that you know, intelligence failure. That Pearl Harbor raid. That the OSS was born. That Roosevelt knew that we had to do better to find out. You know what our upcoming enemies were up to. And it was actually, I know a lot of us are James Bond fans, and I tell in the film how Ian Fleming who later on wrote all the James Bond novels. Was part of MI6, and he came to this country to help. While Bill Donovan, plot out what the OSS would be about.
0: Also interesting that while Bill Donovan was used as an emissary by President Roosevelt because FDR didn't trust his own ambassador, Joseph P. Kennedy.
2: Right, yeah. You know, that was a different political time. We weren't sure if we're going to be isolationist or not. But FDR certainly was sympathetic to, you know, by that time the British had been, uh, London had been blitz and. Because of Pearl Harbor, we got involved, but I think we would have gotten involved anyhow. But our intelligence agencies were very important. And, you know, we, we, we know stories about Julia Child and her French uh, cooking. She was part of the OSS, Marlena Dishwitz, who had left um, Germany to do anything she could against the Nazis. People like Arthur Schlesinger, the writer, Ralph Bunche, the diplomat. Um, but what was interesting about Wild Bill Hickok, not excuse me, not Hickok, well, Paul Donovan, I got the wrong uh, <laughs> period of American history. Um, he really felt that you had a whole array of people. So he got someone like the the athlete who could speak so many languages, the intelligentsia, that, you know, could figure out the diplomatic ends. But he also got safe rockers out of jail, so they could help in the effort. And, you know, it's a precursor to the CIA, and I'm hoping one day there'll be a a TV series based on all the wonderful stories of the OSS.
1: It's interesting. We talked about the sound clips of uh, Babe Ruth's daughter. Another source of, of some of the great interviews in this that you had was uh, from a movie that never got released, uh, The Best Gloveman in the League. Some interviews that were done in the late 80s and early 90s of people that knew Moe his brother, uh, Tommy Thomas, who was one of the pitchers that, that threw to Moberg, So, how important... But
2: Dr. show, William Colby, I'm really lucky. I mean, it's sad. 30 years ago, these two filmmakers uh, took a lot of interviews, but they never made their film. Mm. I happen to know the cameraman because he had shot some interviews for the Hank Greenberg film. So, when it was offered to me, this wonderful businessman in Phoenix, William Levine said, I want you to make a film about Moberg," and You know, well, first he said, I want you to make a film about Sid Lachman, who's this Jewish football player. And I said, I don't like football. He said, what about Barney Ross, the boxer? And I said, I just like boxing more. And then he said, what about Moe Berg? And I said, of course, I'll do it. You know, I love baseball. He's just a great character and such a brave man. It just fit in my M.O. of making films about unknown Jewish heroes.
1: How important is that that first hand account, you know, from from his brother, hearing hearing his brother speak about knowing him and growing up with him?
2: Oh, it it, it makes all the difference in the world. And actually, you're there in Maine. His cousin Denise um, Seamus lives right there in Portland. I was able to go up and film her because um, she was a younger cousin and she knew more of the stories through her parents. Um, but the, the brother had some of the best insights, as well as, you know, the people who played with him and the people who who did missions and spied with him.
0: We're talking with Aviva Kempner about her film, The Spy Behind Home Plate. Well, the, the climax of the Moe Berg story involves him spiriting people out of europe people like uh, physicist antonio ferri and then the confrontation the conversation with werner heisenberg that is as suspenseful as any work of fiction that you'll ever see that was such a tremendous story and then the conversation with heisenberg's son uh, is a tremendous button to that
2: oh wait wait, don't give it up who lives (laughs) in new hampshire by the way so um Actually, the New England trip I made last year were four key interviews. Tom Powers, who wrote the book on Heisenberg, Nicholas Davidoff, who wrote the definitive biography on Moe Berg, uh, and then Heisenberg's son. Uh, he was on the two tour in Vermont. Heisenberg's son was in New Hampshire, Joaquin Heisenberg, and then the cousin in, in Maine, so... Thank you, New
0: England. (laughs) Well, thank you for uh, the wonderful work you've done on this film and your career uh, of telling the story of uh, America and particularly Jewish Americans. The movie is so tremendous, The Spy Behind Home Plate. Aviva Kempner, it's been a real thrill for us to talk with you this afternoon. Thanks so much for being with us.
2: And just check out the website, spybehindhomeplate.org, to know where the film's playing. Thanks
0: so much. Documentary filmmaker Aviva Kempner discussing the spy behind home plate. When we come back, still documentaries, but we switch from baseball to hockey with Joshua Reel, the director of a terrific new film called The Russian Five.
1: where security meets strength
0: back in the 1990s that song became the rallying cry for members of the Detroit Red Wings a team that would win back-to-back Stanley Cups Thanks largely to the efforts of five talented players from the Soviet Union that became known as the Russian Five. Their path to America, hockey success, and the struggles along the way are chronicled in a terrific new documentary called The Russian Five. We talked about it with director Joshua Reel. I thought I knew the story until I watched this film and I've learned so much new information. Obviously, this was a very personal project for you as well. Can you explain why?
3: Yeah, you know, I, I grew up watching the the Red Wings and the Russian Five like anyone else that grew up in Michigan, really. Um, you know, the Russians were kind of what made me kind of drift from baseball to hockey, actually. You know, Fedorov came around, and he was so exciting. And then Konstantinov came, and he was just so dominant. You know, he became my favorite player. And, and you know, the, the limousine accident that happened after them won the Cup, and spoiler alert, um, but... <laughs> you know, Vladdy, kind of his perseverance through that kind of inspired me after a car accident that I was in, uh, eventually required a couple of back surgeries and, and six years of sort of that. And so, uh, you know, through that time, my grandparents got me a concert That was sort of an inspiration to say, you know, well, what I'm going through is, it sucks, but what Vladdy went through was so much worse, and he persevered with a smile on his face. So I knew, you know, I, w- I wanted to keep making films this was a story I had to tell him. So it kind of, the fates came together so that it was the first film that I made. Uh,
0: it was also awesome and a pleasant surprise for us to see a great friend of our show, Jeff Daniels in the movie.
3: Yeah. You know, Jeff, uh, you know, he, he speaks for the fan and, you know, I was trying to get him and, or Dave Coulier in the film. And, <laughs> you know, Dave uh, was shooting in Fuller house and we hadn't heard from Jeff. And I was starting to get panicked about like, who's going to speak for the fan in this film. And then, Jeff sent us an email. I was like, hey, you know, I totally missed your email to the Purple Rose. If you guys are interested, I'm still down. I'm in town for a minute. So I got a crew. We ran to Chelsea. We sent him down, and, and, you know, he gave us some great stuff. And it was cool because, you know, before I I interviewed him, I had found this footage of him in the locker room when they won the cup. So I knew, you know, you could give me some stuff because he was really there. He wasn't one of these celebrities who just kind of shows up you know, the night of the championship and leaves. Like, he was there through the playoff runs. He was there for the big games. Sometimes he was there for the, you know, the small games, too. Well,
0: it was great to have him, and I I understand it was also obviously key to you, and and was it a little intimidating to get that interview lined up with the guy you call the Jedi Master, the great Scotty Bowman?
3: Scotty Bowman, I mean, that was the first interview that we did when we had, you know, Dan Milstein, who executive produced the film, Signed on board, and it was kind of, um, you know, we put in a situation where we're like, we got to move fast if we're going to do this because Sergey Fedorov was being inducted in the Hockey Hall of Fame. We wanted to go and, and get some footage there and maybe pick up some interviews. So, you know, we interviewed Scotty while we were there. And, uh, yeah, you know, he, <laughs> I thought I'd send, you know, send a little softball up and ask him about, you know, his background in Soviet hockey. The next thing I know, he's on a six, seven minute, uh, you know, speech about the Soviet's 1972 third line center, you know, so it was, it was, uh, pretty incredible, a little overwhelming. And, you know, I have to quickly get your footing and say, this isn't what the interview is about. I got to steer Scotty Bowman back, but you don't steer Scotty Bowman,
0: you know? (laughs) Uh, one of the other people, one of the people I found so compelling because I, I didn't know all that much about him uh, is the general manager who came over from the New York Islanders. Uh, Jimmy Devolano is such a, a great part of the story.
3: Oh, Jimmy D is fantastic. You know, he was he was a guy who at the end of the day, it was his decision, you know, and, and all of the, the factors that went in, you know, how will these Russians fit in a locker room? Can we get them? Do they play hard? At the end of the day, Jimmy D said, well, if we can get them, if they fit in the locker room, if they play hard, they sure are talented and make us a lot better real fast. And so, you know, Jimmy had an owner and Mike Gillich who said, you know, do whatever it takes to win. You've got a blank check if that's what it takes. And and so, you know, they, they needed some of that money to bribe, you know, Russian officials and et cetera, to, to get some of these players over. But when they did, you saw how much it changed the Red Wings and really, not just the Red Wings, but changes the NHL.
0: Well, and it becomes at that point, too, when the word goes out that they want at least one of these guys. Now it becomes uh, this James Bond-like thriller with some intermediaries doing their work really all around the globe.
3: Yeah, you know, it, it, it definitely takes on that kind of feel, which was fun as a director and working with my editor, David Fabello, where, you know, you're trying to find a tone that kind of stays consistent throughout the film. And, you know, despite the fact that there's some sadness and tragedy, you know, we thought, let's find a way to make this kind of airy and, and fun. So even in those dramatic scenes, you know, we've still got moments where Jim White or Nick Polano are cracking jokes. Um, just to kind of to balance it, because, yeah, you know, this is a is a wide scope of the story, you know, because once they get to America, then there's a story of the immigrant and how, they, how do they fit into the locker room. And then there's a story of, you know, how do we win a championship? And then obviously – the human element that comes into play after that.
0: We're talking with director Joshua Reel. The film is The Russian Five, and today uh, is a big day in terms of access to the film for people.
3: Yeah, today we are streaming online. Uh, it's available at any sort of, any of the major VOD platforms for purchase or rent. Uh, and if people go to the russian5.com slash watch, uh, we've got all the options there. But if you go on iTunes, you go on Amazon Prime, you go on Google Play. If you're on your Xbox or your PS4, you can go into the store for movies. You can get it there. Um, so yeah, people all over will get a chance to see it. We've been touring the film through film festivals last year, and then in theaters uh, over the last maybe nine nine to ten weeks. We've played in 18 states over 90 markets. Uh, but now it's a chance for anyone anywhere in North America basically to see it.
0: Well, it's a remarkable story, and for anybody who doesn't know, uh, you've got to watch this. But what I found compelling, too, is, yeah, it's a great story about hockey, but it really transcends the sport to talk about uh, these, these people, these guys and the adjustment they had to make in coming to America and, in many ways, the adjustment of Detroit and America and the National Hockey League had to make to them.
3: Absolutely. You know, th- those guys, you know, they had to leave everything. Everything that they knew in life behind, right? And so, and we kind of forget about that, that. You know, the journey of an immigrant coming to America for this this better life of the American dream, and for these guys, it was to play in front of twenty thousand people, screaming, cheering on the biggest stage against the best in the world. And and they came here, and they were able to do that part without a problem. But yeah, it's the the integration in the locker room, and how do the rest of the teammates accept them? And luckily for. The, the Detroit Red Wings, they had a captain, Steve Eiserman, who said, you're here to work hard? If you're going to work hard, I don't care where you come from. We're going to accept you into the locker room. And, and fortunately for Detroit, those Russians that they brought were willing to work hard. You know, And they defied whatever stereotypes that were already kind of in the league. Sergey, Vladi, and Kazi, you know, they worked their, their tails off to try to you know be the best that they could be. And, and through that process, they won over the team.
0: Interesting, too, that you knew of the skills of Fedorov, certainly, but when it came time to actually getting the big win and capturing the Stanley Cup in many ways, uh, it was the work of the veterans, the older guys, that proved to be the difference.
3: Yeah, you know, and I think that's that's kind of common, right, where it's, yeah, you need your firepower, but you also need your generals. They're going to know when when to call in a play, when to call in, you know, whether it's to push Sergei, and you see in the film that sort of, Slava Fatisov's leadership started to rub off on Vladdy Konstantinov by 97. And so, and I am spoiling anything, but there's a moment where kind of Vladdy has to, has to take on that role. But he's inspired by the older guys. And, and even stuff that we weren't able to put into the film uh, just because of time, you know, Kursovsky talked about how, you know, those Russians, like Slava Fatisov and Igor Laryanov, they weren't just for the Russian players. They were there for everyone. And they were all kind of like the, the grandfather who pull you aside and say, Hey kid, you got this. And, and Ozzie talked talked about a story where tea stuff." he wouldn't say much. he'd just say, Ozzy, you got this. And then a couple of days later, he said, what'd I tell you, kid, you had it, you know? And it was just sort of that, the fact that they had been through so much, you know, uh, they had won everything that there was to win in hockey, except for the Stanley cup. And after that, the lost Colorado in 96, I think that the younger Russians and the rest of the team saw just how much it meant to these guys. and, and what they went through fighting with, with Tikhanov and the Soviet system to, to secure their release, not defection, release. Those guys, Slava and, and Igor, fought their way over against the, the communist government to win you know, the right to come to America. And it was a battle, you know, and so for them to finally get that close to the Stanley Cup, I think that was motivation for everyone in that locker room. And you see it when Steve Eisenman, you know, who's the first person that he hands it off to mm. after he takes his lap? Slava
0: Ptisa. One of the filmmaking decisions you had to make was uh, uh, you had some parts of the story where you, you didn't have any footage and you went an interesting direction here in using animation. And I, I think it worked so well. Were you pleasantly surprised by how well that turned out?
3: Yeah. I mean, you know, you you're always hoping when you're going through the process. And I mean that the animation really was an international collaboration where We had a storyboard artist in Los Angeles work with me, and you know we we spent months kind of talking through the scenes, and then he would draw storyboards, and then we found these incredibly talented artists in uh, Ukraine, and so we'd send them the storyboards, and then they would draw them in, and then they'd send those storyboards over to us in Austin where we finished the film, and we had an animator start moving those story you know those those paintings in 3D space. Um, But I personally I hate recreations. I think they're cheesy. Um, And Jenny Fedorovich, my producer and I, from the first conversation that we had, you know, this was something that we knew we had to tackle. How do you show that in a clever, creative way? And I think animation, if it's done well, can be really, really cool. And so we said, let's do, well, I said Soviet propaganda posters. And she said, what if they move like Sin City? And right away, we're like, all right, (laughs) we're on the same page. And this is a good way to start start this uh, production together. Being on that same page, and you know, we wouldn't realize at that time all the hard work it would take. Um, it, to the point where you know, Jenny had a child during while we were making this film, and she had just given birth. was uh, through emergency C-section after being in labor for like over like over forty-eight hours, and we had to have her jump on a phone with the Ukrainians because we needed someone who could speak Russian. And so, you know, she's like, "Hold the baby and <laughs> bring me a laptop and a cell phone," and she did it. And I don't know what she said to them, but whatever it was, uh, we got a lot of, of uh, images really quickly after that.
0: <laughs> one of my favorite parts of the film too is the appearance by the great one Wayne Gretzky, and it was the epitome of the term grudging respect.
3: Yeah, yeah, you know he, I mean, you know he goes back to the respect between him and Igor and Slava, you know, to those Canada Cup days in '87, and, and Wayne when when Sergei came to the league and. You know, people kind of forget 93-94 when Sergei had his MVP season. It was him neck and neck with Wayne Gretzky. So I think those kind of those things made him really aware of just how good the, the Russians were. And then Vladdy Konstantinov was a guy who, you know, he didn't care that it was Wayne Gretzky. If Wayne Gretzky came into his zone, he was going to hit him. You know, and, and someone like Wayne Gretzky, he respects that for sure. So it was just an honor to be able to get him into the film. Um, It was quite an experience getting to Toronto on last minute notice to do so, but uh, we're grateful that he, you know, he gave me a half hour.
0: And of course, for anybody who's not familiar with the story, the the film takes an incredibly poignant turn with the real life incident that occurred right after winning the Stanley cup with that, that tragic uh, limousine accident. And and my gosh, uh, just it's a gut punch, even though you know what happens to see that play out.
3: Yeah. You know, I, I remember, I remember where I was when I heard the news and I know, you know, everyone that I talked to in the interview, we all, they all remembered as well. And so it was, it was a gut punch and, you know, Detroit had waited for so long 42 years. You know, I mean, that's more than I've been alive for a Stanley cup or for a championship. And we, we got it. And then we didn't even get a full week to celebrate. And, you know, what's hard is they did everything right. They got limos, they hired drivers so that no one was going to drink and drive. And then just, you know, someone made an irresponsible decision and that's, you know, someone was being the the limo driver and it altered two people's lives forever. And, you know, and if was, you know, getting to see archival footage of him and and talking to these guys about what he was like beforehand, you know, I mean, that's one of the tragedies of, of that was, yeah, you know, it, it robbed the Red Wings of maybe some Stanley cups and, and, You know, surefire Hall of Fame defenseman. But really, what it robbed is the city of Detroit, his family, the community from this really incredible individual who was really starting to become comfortable in America in his own skin. And you could start to see his personality really develop. uh, You know, the Vladinator when he put on the sunglasses. (laughs) And and it's just really tragically ironic that that happened right at the cusp of that. You know, and, and I was told Monday morning he actually had his first. Photo shoot for a commercial plan. And, and, you know, it's just one of those things with life. You never know just how fragile it can be until it happens.
0: Uh, it had to be a pretty incredible mm-hmm. moment for you and Jenny and everybody involved in the film when you had your Detroit premiere and and Vladdy Konstantinov was there with, with Dave Coulier, right?
3: Yeah. So, Vlad, you know, Vladdy came to the film festival premiere last April. Um, but I was being pulled 9 million directions. So I didn't really get a chance to see him other than to greet him and, and say hello. And then I was, you know, Oh, we need this. So I was off. But back in March when we had our theatrical premieres, we launched our, our film and theaters, Vladdy and Dave Coulier came up. And so the us, you know, and Dave's guests and Vladdy's family and, and, and his, um, handlers as far as, uh, his, his nurse, et cetera, we're all in the skybox. of, and Vlady you know, he'd watch it, and when he'd see someone like Steve Eisenman on the screen, he'd go, Stevie, Stevie, you get really excited. And, you know, when he'd see himself hit a player, he'd get really happy, and I could hear him. When Don Cherry showed up in the film, he started, like, grunting in Russian, and I don't know what he said, but his daughter was like, it's okay, Dad, it's okay. <laughs> um, but what really, really moved me was, you know, we made it a point to include We Are the Champions in this film, um, not because it's a typical sports, yeah, we won, but because that was a song that Vladdy fell in love with when they won, and he would sing it all the time. And so when he was in a coma, his teammates would play it for him, and that was a song where when he would hear it, well, in a coma, his vitals would tick up. Sometimes he'd squeeze a finger. So we knew it was really important to include that song, and so when I'm watching it with him and, and Dave and their guests up in the box... That part of the film started playing, and, and Vladdy started singing along with it, um, and it was just real you know he was like kind of mumbling under his breath, but I could tell that, that he was trying to sing we're the champions, and it really hit me that there's something about this movie that really triggers in a special place in his memory from before the accident when you know things were happy and joyful, and so I mean that 's a gift that's been given to us that we would have never expected was to be able to move and and create these positive emotions in someone who gave so much to us
0: that's an incredible story so yeah you worked on this film for uh, i think well more than six years so you you certainly couldn't have known what the climate of america would be in 2019 and yet this film to me uh, is even more important now than it would have been given what things are like in this country as, as we we talk about uh, people from other lands other cultures and assimilation and it just makes it even more powerful and more timely
3: yeah you know you're right. i would have had no clue that where we were or where we are right now is where we'd be when i started the project and you know you, you have the, the angle with people coming to america and should we should we welcome them should we not and then you know we've also had you know russians being in the media and all of a sudden russians are the bad guy again uh for some people and it's I think it's just all of that is important to remember that people are people, you know? And just because someone's a Russian doesn't mean that they agree with the Russian government. Someone's American doesn't agree with the American government necessarily. It's how are you as an individual? How are you as a human being? Are you here to work hard? Are you here to try to give your family a better future? You know, that's what it's about. I mean, that's the American dream, right? So, I mean, this is the only country in the world where a guy from Port Huron, Michigan, who can go through what I went through, can meet a girl from so- the Soviet Union who immigrated here in 89, and together, Jenny and I, we can make this movie to honor this legacy that the Russians five had. And I don't know anywhere else in the world that that can be possible, but but America
0: well, and actually, we wanted to have and planned to have Jenny on with us. We had a little phone issue, and we're unable wow. to have her on. But, uh, yeah, this the story of, of the Russian Five, and, and she shares some similarities to that, and she emigrated to America about the same time that Fedorov did, right?
3: She did. She came here in 1989.
0: That is remarkable. Well, th- it really is a, a tremendous film. Uh, as a hockey fan, uh, anybody will love it as a history fan or just as the fan fan of a great story it is such a good movie the russian five now available on all kinds of platforms out there so make sure you get to it uh josh great to talk with you love the film so much thank you for making time for us today
3: thank you thank you for having us thank you for
0: making time joshua real talking about his terrific new film the russian five here on downtown the podcast both those movies we talked about so good Uh, check them out the Spy Behind Home Plate from Aviva Kempner and The Russian Five with Joshua Real. And thanks to both of them for joining us. And thanks to you for being with us as well on Downtown the Podcast. Tell your friends, subscribe, put in a nice review. We sure would appreciate that. And we'll see you next time on Downtown the Podcast, brought to you by Cross Insurance.